0: Welcome to episode 341, part two of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane, and this is part two of our conversation with Jerry Oltian. So without further delay, let's join Chris, Shane, and Jerry midway through their conversation. Just before we move on to telescope, just want to say that on your website you've got a a really useful article, I think for many observers. Titled "Astronomy on a Budget," uh, can you just briefly tell us the purpose of this article and who is who this article is intended for?
1: That article is intended for one kid who emailed me several times, um, trying to come up with a telescope, and uh, you know, wondering how how much money would he have to save up in order to get a telescope, and you know, would it be cheaper to build one himself? And he asked all these questions and uh you know i emailed him an answer um but he wrote back to me and he said you know you should make an article you should write this up as an article and i i uh, offered it to sky and telescope and he said well it's a little little basic for for us you know um so uh, they passed on it but i went ahead and put it up on my website and so <laughs> they, honestly i wrote it for one kid and uh But, yeah, I was hoping that it would uh, be useful for anybody who has those same questions of, uh, you know, how much is it going to cost to get into astronomy? And, you know, is it going to break the bank or can I do this on a fairly, fairly low budget? And, uh, you know, it was it was fun to kind of relive my own experience getting into astronomy and think, well, you know, what did I get first and what was useful and what was not? And uh, you know, I, I probably didn't need to spend $250 on that two and a half millimeter IP piece early on, you know, <laughs> it was not my most useful eye piece. <laughs> So, uh, Yeah, uh, so yeah, it was just kind of written for newcomers to uh, have a kind of a reality check, I guess, more than anything.
2: It's a great resource, Jerry. This is awesome.
1: Well, I'm glad you liked it. I, when I put it up, I was wondering if anybody was actually going to get any use out of it or not. So uh, it's good to hear that that uh, you know you guys actually thought it was worth the effort.
2: For sure. Well, should we move into telescope building?
0: I can hardly wait, Shane. Oh, I have right. to ask. I want to. I have to ask you a question, Shane. So I remember when this world's largest astro scan, as I like to call it. Uh, I know that's not the title of the article, but it it is it is available on Jerry's website, JerryOltianOltian dot com. And uh, had you seen this photo before I put it in the show notes? I, just I have not. Kidding. No, you no. you had not, and and you're looking at it now. I think.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's amazing.
0: <laughs> I love <laughs> it. This is so good. <laughs> so the reason why I bought the magazine is. I was, uh, there was there was a, a telescope, I don't know how many telescopes he made, but he also uh, refurbished telescopes named Ron Ravenberg. And he was at a star party I was at once and he had the little aster scan and it was awesome. Like he had tweaked it and everything and I really enjoyed right. looking through it. And then when I saw this, I was like, where do I get to buy the eight inch version? <laughs> <laughs> right. I was a little disappointed. <laughs> I, I have had people offer to purchase
1: it and uh, oh, yeah you know it's like i, I would i said someday i probably will sell it well but, but uh, you know when i'm when i built it i was a little worried that i was infringing a copyright <laughs> and uh, you know you you can you honestly you can't even build something yourself and use it yourself if it's copyrighted or, or trademarked um you know there's a it's a legal gray area people get away with it because it's not worth their trouble to prosecute if you're just using it yourself yeah but if i sold it i think edmund scientific or uh yeah Edmund scientific they might have something to say about that Mm
2: -hmm. although it just looks
0: stock though right it looks
2: perfect yeah
0: there's the little four i think there were like four and a quarter four and a half inch Mm -hmm. f4.1 4.2 right 4.2 and and they had like this tripod that you could get that was a little bit hokey and it was a ball and it was just mm-hmm. like this little mini portable telescope and you just supersized it. And you even used like, I think it's like the 32 millimeter Erfol they used to sell, which sort of matches, I think the 28 millimeter RKE they used to. It just,
1: Actually, it just... I made my own eyepiece. And oh, you there.
0: made your own eyepiece. I made that Amazing. eyepiece. <laughs> oh, this is so good.
2: <laughs> All right, so take this... it
0: away, Shane. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's
2: start at the beginning of this, Jerry. How did you get into building uh, your own telescopes?
1: Um, there's a friend of mine named, um, uh, David Davis, who, uh, was grinding telescope mirrors out of the most unusual things. Um, he tried a granite paving stone and he actually got a reasonably good mirror out of it. Hmm. Um, he would use the bottoms of pie pans, like a Pyrex pie plate. And, um, he would, uh you know, the bottoms are actually kind of curved upward from, from, you know, when the pie, when it's sitting on the table as a pie pan, uh, the the bottom actually has a little bit of a curve and he measured the Sagittarius and it turned out it was about an F5 curve. So he just, (laughs) he just fine ground it and, uh, you know, and then polish it out. And he had an F5 mirror made out of a Pyrex pie pan. And uh, so he was doing stuff like that. And uh, I had not built any telescopes at that point. I was still just using my, uh, my Celestron eight inch scope, uh, still on the equatorial mount even. And, uh, Dave put on a, uh, a mirror grinding class. And I thought, well, this would be fun. You know, learning from somebody who isn't just like a, uh, a stickler for doing it the same old way all the time. You know, David has uh, really interesting ideas about how things can be done. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of that way too. I don't, I don't follow the rules very well. So, uh, you know, anyway, I took a class from David and uh, uh, started grinding on a pre a pre generated curve. It was it was pre generated to like f4, I think, or f4.5, and I wanted a longer telescope, so I was trying to turn it into an f5. But grinding with the tool on top that uh, that decreases the curvature of your mirror when you're grinding with the tool on top. It does for everyone else, anyway, but it didn't do that for me. The, the mirror just kept getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And <laughs> I finally realized, you know, I've got to stop because it's, you know, this thing's getting away from me. And so I, I did the fine grinding and the polishing, but I ended up with a mirror that was F 3.8, which was wow. insanely fast for the time.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah. For the time it was just insanely fast. Um, and uh, you know, Mel, uh, Mel Bartels got in on the tail end of this class Uh, And I I think David asked him to show up and help because it's like, how do you parabolize an F3.8 mirror? Very difficult to do. And this was my first mirror. And Dave didn't want to tell me it was impossible. You know, he just, he wanted me to, uh, wanted me to give it a shot. And it took me five tries to, uh, to get that, uh, to get the parabola, even close. But I finally did get it. And, uh, but that left me with an insanely short, uh, focal length, and the question was, well, what do I do with that? That will actually make make it worth the trouble. You know, I mean, I could just make a regular Dobsonian scope, and it would be a funny-looking short Dob. But I started thinking kind of outside the box, and I, I don't know, it was like one of those 3 a.m. you wake up with a light bulb over your head moments when I thought, let's put this in a ball. And I, I wasn't thinking AstroScan; I didn't even know about the AstroScan at that point um i just thought this what would happen if you put it in a ball and uh you know it's short enough that you could balance it pretty easy with just a little bit of weight behind the mirror and, uh, and you know uh you know it, it wouldn't have the Dobbs hole problem of mm-hmm. going through the zenith right so uh, a lot of uh advantages uh other than the big disadvantage of what do you use for a ball and uh I decided uh, to take a kid's rubber ball. that was a 16-inch diameter. I had a 10-inch mirror, and I thought that'll let the mirror rest close to the bottom of the ball. Um, I took a kid's rubber ball, and I coated it in fiberglass
3: on the outside. Uh
1: And I left room to deflate the ball and pull it out the top. And uh, then, holy cow, then I spent hours and hours and hours sanding the fiberglass smooth. And uh, I bought body filler and I'd fill in the low spots and then I'd sand it smooth. And I was under the impression that it had to be perfectly spherical. So I was really, you know, I was a stickler for trying to get it spherical. And it turns out, no, you don't have to have a, it doesn't have to be even close to perfectly spherical to make a good ball scope. But I didn't know that at the time. And, uh, and also you need to wear a honest to God, HEPA a respirator with the Darth Vader filters on the side. Yeah. And all. yeah. Yeah. i didn't know that either so i breathed a lot of fiberglass and oh no <laughs> oh so, yeah you know i'm gonna probably die of cancer someday and it'll be lung cancer from that fiberglass
3: <laughs> <laughs> <It's> <laughs> telescope. So,
1: yeah you know that's uh that's the biggest mistake i ever made in uh, yeah, making yeah. telescopes is breathing all that fiberglass dust um but you know the happy part of that story is that i actually wound up with a pretty decent telescope um I used a five-gallon bucket for the secondary cage. Um you just cut the bottom off the bucket and it makes a perfect secondary cage.
2: Wow. Um, yeah, and this, this is if, for the AstroScan, scan. The this, the larger no, AstroScan. No, no this, this is, is just the larger one, ball.
1: This is the one I call the trackball, the purple ah, one on okay, my website. Okay.
2: Oh, and, okay. That one, yep.
1: Right. And I call it a trackball because I also came up with a mechanism for how to make the ball track. And uh, uh, you know, basically, it was another one of those forehead slap moments when I realized that um, you know the stars move east to west because the Earth is rotating west to east. Well, if I made my ball rotate opposite the direction of the Earth, then it should track the stars, right? And so it just needs to rotate east to west once a day, and it should track the stars. And it turns out if you have an axle pointing at uh, the celestial pole, and at my latitude, I'm 44 north, so I can see Polaris easily enough. And so Mm -hmm. you aim this, you you aim an axle, a drive axle at Polaris, and rest the ball up against that axle. And then it rests on two other points that allow it to rotate. And you turn that axle, the ball tracks. No matter where it's pointed in the sky, it tracks if you point the scope at Polaris, it just rotates around its axis and it stays pointing at Polaris. <laughs> uh, you know, so it turned out to, that it worked. And uh, wow. I tried, I, I, I thought, "One, well, this is such a simple idea there's got to be a telescope design out there like this. And I looked all over the net and I couldn't find any mention of it anywhere. Um, so that's when I contacted Gary Saronic at Sky and Telescope and I wrote the article about it. And when the article came out, a guy named Pierre LeMay from uh, Toronto, I believe it is, uh, wrote to me very kindly and said, oh, you came up with the idea that I came up with 10 years earlier. <laughs> <laughs> and he had a photo of uh, his scope uh, at Stellafane, uh, which was published in Sky and Telescope magazine 10 years yeah. earlier. So, you know, proof, positive. Um, so uh, Pierre and I are now kind of the uh, the cheerleaders for the Trackball Telescope, uh, and you know mm-hmm. I, I point out to people I I invented it independently, but Pierre invented it independently before I did. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so uh, I think it's it's an idea whose time has come.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful telescope. I I love it.
0: I maybe, I do too. Maybe and, we can talk about the. Uh, the great big astro scan too. We, we yeah. we're gonna go, we're gonna we'll we'll take about another 10 minutes, Jerry, if that's okay with you. Sure. Yeah. 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 So let's talk about the, the world's biggest astro scan.
1: Okay. Well, the thing about the trackball is everybody who saw the trackball telescope said, Oh, you know, um, it looks a little like an astro scan. And you know, what they were reacting to is that the astro scan has a round bottom and it sets in a little cradle and uh you know the uh you you look in uh the the, the top like a newtonian telescope and um uh, so people kept telling me that it looked a little bit like an astro scan and um uh, that kind of gave me the idea you know by then i I looked up astro scan and figured out what it was and then come to think about a guy at the oregon star party sold me an astro scan and so i actually had one at that point and uh i was looking at that and i was grinding on an eight inch mirror and uh Lo and behold, it came out f4.2, which, uh, you know, the AstroScan is a four and a quarter inch mirror at f4.2. And, uh, you know, I just sort of percolated around my head and I thought, I need to build a big AstroScan. <laughs> <laughs> and that way, when people say it looks like a big AstroScan, it's like, well, yes, it does because I intended it to. <laughs> <laughs> but that, you know, that started me down a real rabbit hole because, uh, you know, okay, the AstroScan has a 10-inch diameter ball uh, with that 4-inch mirror in there, so it sits way down at the bottom. Mm. And so, uh, you know, that's how partially how they got it to balance. And then they put a counterweight in there as well. Well, I needed a 20-inch diameter ball then um, if I was going to double scale it. And I I, I did not want to put fiberglass over a 20-inch ball uh, and sand it back down. And I found that I could buy a 20 inch plastic globe that would be used like for decorative lighting in a park or something like that. Oh. And it was still too flexible, but I could put fiberglass on the inside of it and that would stiffen it up. And I didn't have to sand anything. And the outside of the ball is perfectly smooth. And, uh, it had that molded look like an astra scan. Yeah. And so then it was a question, okay, the, the top end of an astra scan is cylindrical. What do I use for a cylinder? And, uh, Went down to the hardware store. I have a hardware store. It's kind of a local store, too. It's not one of the big chains, uh, just down at the bottom of the hill. And uh, I'm just wandering around in there looking for ideas. And there's this garbage can, big plastic garbage can.
2: It's a, a Jones Bird
1: garbage
0: I was can. just going to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it That's over. actually a Jones Bird. This is the best use case for it. Right. <laughs> But it was a tapered
1: garbage can, but it was the right diameter at the bottom. It was just a little mm. too large at the top. And I realized if I cut wedges out of it, I could close it up and make it a cylinder. And it would have the seam up the side that the AstroScan has. Mm. And uh, so it would actually add to the verisimilitude to actually use a garbage can that had been slit up the side. And uh, so I did that. And uh, then came the question of the focuser. You know, the focuser is molded into the AstroScan. Yeah and i i realized you know that's going to be the make or break thing if i can make the focuser look right um then the thing the, the telescope's going to look good but if the focuser looks like it's just cobbled together out of cardboard that's not going to work and uh, i have there's a plastics place here in town that sells all sorts of weird sheet plastics and i went down there and i asked them i showed them what i was wanted to make and i took my astroscan the little one and i showed them i said i want, you, I want to make this double scale um, and uh, the guy said, oh, well, here's the stuff you need. And it's this PVC plastic that can be molded and bent with just heat from a hairdryer. You just wow. you just run a hairdryer across it a dozen times or so, and then you can bend it so gently into shapes. Hmm. And uh, it turns out it only took two bends, a, a kind of a horseshoe bend and then an L-shaped bend. And, uh, and it fit beautifully. And I scaled it at like, what, one and three quarters so that I could use two-inch eyepieces. And uh, you know, and then, of course, I'm looking for a two-inch RKE eyepiece that would look like an asterisk eyepiece. Couldn't find anything. But uh, Surplus Shed sells uh, the lenses to make a big RKE eyepiece for like $8. So I bought, <laughs> I bought the lenses. And then I, I discovered that the right diameter for the lenses would be a, a, a contact lens uh, solution bottle that I had. You know, so I cut the ends off of that, and that held the lenses. <laughs> and you know another one became the the outer tube. and uh, and uh, then I I think I used a wrapping paper tube for the two inch barrel. Oh. and uh, and then I needed that little rubber ring around it with you know, that
0: little the ball. red yeah. ring. Uh, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, and i was I was at a loss for what to use. And the thing is, by then I had bought Mel's uh, tritop, and along with the scope, he he sold me two eyepieces. A couple of um, Nagler eyepieces, and the 22 Nagler had exactly the right rubber ring. It was black, but I figured I can paint it orange. It was like I am not tearing apart a 22 Nagler eyepiece in order to (laughs) make my little. But I called uh, I called Teleview, and I got Al Nagler's son on the on the phone, and I told him I was David. That's right, I got David on the phone, and David he was just cracking up. And he said, you know, <laughs> we, we sell these rings for like 10 bucks, you know, and he said, I'll just, I'll just send you one. <laughs> so yeah, I gave him my address and he sent me one of those rings and I painted it orange. So I've got a, I've got a Nagler grip ring on my, on my homemade RKE IP.
2: <laughs> I love this so much. This sounds like such a fun project and the result is outstanding. Like this is great. I The think thing I,
0: the thing I, I love guess- about this. We'll I just ahead. want to say, I think my favorite part is the fact that how they had that, um, dust cover that kind of sat mm-hmm. in, it was all molded and he, and oh, it yeah. said Edmund across it. And on yours, you did that, but you put old Teon on, it, yeah. your last name. And I just like, like it just <laughs> it's makes, perfect. it's so hyper real,
1: right? <laughs> it, it, it is as real as I could make it right down to the, right down to the base. Actually, I made the base that looks yeah. like the Astroscan base. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I made it tracking, you know? So th- this is a tracking astro scan. And huh. uh, yeah, uh, and the thing is, it was a very awkward height. You know, uh, the, uh, the little aspartame, you can like set it on a table or something and sit down and view it. But mine, too big for a table, too small to sit on the ground. So I built legs to uh, raise it up to where it's at a good height to use while you're seated. Huh. And, and so the base is now sitting on legs. I painted them black so that it, you know, the legs kind of disappear in the dark and it looks like this Astro scan is just kind of hovering there in space. <laughs> <That's great. laughs> but I got to oh, tell you that the thing I love most about this is when I take it to star parties, because mm. I'll take the small Astro scan and set it on the table and then I got the big one right next to it. And people <laughs> just, they, they crack up when they see it. <laughs> I mean, it, it's one of those things, you know, it's like when the new Volkswagen came out, it was just such a happy looking car. Everybody smiled when they saw it. Yeah. And, You know, the, uh, the Astroscans like that, people come up to it at a star party and they're already smiling before they even know what it is. Uh, Uh It just looks so silly.
2: (laughs) Well, that's great. Uh, How does it perform optically?
1: Pretty well. Um, it is F4.2. So there's coma, you know, I don't use a coma corrector with it. So there's coma out around the outer edges. And of course my homemade eyepiece isn't, you know, it's not an agler. So it's Mm -hmm. uh, there's coma around the edges there. Um, but honestly, you know, I, coma doesn't bother me. Um, I don't, I'm looking through the center of the field at a bright object, right? So, uh, mm-hmm. so uh, yeah, you know, the, the outside of the field is just sort of context. And I use that to help guide me towards something. And then, you know, looking through the center of the field of view, it's fine. Uh, it, it, it provides a very nice, crisp view, just like any other 8-inch F4 telescope would do.
2: <laughs> right on.
0: All right. Do we want to talk about the, uh, 12 and a half inch binocular scope a uh, little bit before we conclude?
1: I'd be happy to.
0: <laughs> so Maybe that just... one,
1: that one, I have another friend here in town that I blame on um, the binocular scope on There's a guy named Frank Skopansky. Um, he builds binocular scopes uh, and he can build a telescope like in an afternoon and have it out observing that evening. Ah, uh, wow. And he makes everything look so easy. And, uh, you know, I came up with uh, let's see, how this all work? I built a 12-inch astra scan, and then I wound up with another mirror that was almost the same focal length. And uh, you know, it was at, at I think it was at a, a swap meet. I came up with a mirror that was like same thickness, uh, um, and it was only like two inches away in focal length from the one that I already made. And Frank said, "Well, why don't you make a binoscope?" You know, and uh, it was like 20 bucks for the mirror. So it's like, okay, well, I'll think about it, right? Well, I thought about it for about two years before I had the courage to actually build a 12-inch bino. And during that time, I went ahead and ground the mirror down to where it was within about, oh, three-quarters of an inch of the same focal length. So it was a a lot closer, um, so it would work better in in a binoscope. And then I just started started building. You know, I'm not the kind of guy who does a lot of plans. Um, I just... I just decided, well, I'm going to start with a big box that will hold two mirrors. And, uh, you know, and I'm going to set the two mirrors in the bottom of the box. And then I'm going to build another big box on top to hold the secondary cages. And they will have eight trusses in between. And that will provide enough triangles to where it's really, really stiff. And I figured, OK, one of the biggest bugaboos about binocular scopes is that when you slew from zenith to horizon, um, they fall out of collimation uh, or, well, merging, we call it. You know, the images uh, separate. And so I didn't want that to happen. And so I thought, well, if I make it as stiff as possible, then uh, that will that will not happen. And, and so basically, this thing is like the, the matte truck of binoscopes. It's it's heavy and boxy and big, and uh, and it works like a charm. <laughs> you know, it's just yeah, it's sometimes a, a little over engineering is what you need. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I. I consulted with Frank quite a bit on things that were actually important and things that weren't. And, uh, and we were talking about, how do we actually change the interpupillary distance of the eyepieces for people's different sized faces, right. Um, without changing the focus, you know, I was like, I didn't really want to use multiple focusers. Uh, there's a design that uses four focusers and I just thought, man, that's too much. So Frank came up with this perfect idea. It's like rotate the secondary cages. And he'd already proven that concept on like two or three of his telescopes. Mm. And he taught me how to do that. And uh, very simple, you know, Teflon pads that it rests on and just little washers holding it in place, you know, four, four bolts and four washers. And, uh, but you cut the circle with a router. So it's a near perfect circle and, you know, it makes a perfect rotating cage. Oh, it's
3: genius. Uh, and he,
1: yeah, and Frank came up with the actual push-pull mechanism that would uh, rotate the, both cages at once.
3: Mm-hmm. So,
1: you know, I really do owe a lot of this telescope to to Frank and his uh, design sense. And, uh, you know, altogether it, it just kind of, it came together piece at a time until, uh, you know, one day I set it up in a driveway and started tweaking the mirrors so that the two images would merge. And Man, M thirteen came over in stereo. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, suddenly it was it was worth every minute that I put oh, into yeah. it. <laughs>
2: yeah, I can only I can only imagine. Is it is it different, Jerry? Like, you know, because how you I guess put your eye to the telescope is different, right? You're sort of at the front of the telescope where the light's mm-hmm. entering. So when you're trying to find an object, is it different to move this telescope or does does it just kind of seem normal to you and and almost like any other scope
1: well the cool thing about this is that the uh, the binoscope inverts everything up; it makes everything upside down but it's uh okay left right mm-hmm. but because you're looking down into it and you're looking the telescope is looking over your shoulders at what's behind you it feels exactly the same as moving a dobsonian telescope around the image oh, wow. goes in the image goes in exactly the same way. It's just it's okay. looking over your shoulder instead of out in front of you. Hmm. And uh, so it's, it's totally intuitive. Okay. Um, when you're star hopping, though, you have to, you have to invert your map upside down. Uh, right. But you can't invert it. You can't just, like, turn it 180 degrees the way you do with a dog. So I've learned um, when I'm using that scope, I actually use uh, Sky Safari and I, I flip the screen upside down, uh, there's a control that does that. Mm-hmm. And so that way I can use the, the um, planetarium program. It will match what I see in the eyepieces, and I can still start off my way to an object. Oh, right on. But it's really intuitive, actually, to move one of these, rever- it's kind of we call them a reverse binocular because it's looking over your shoulders.
2: I've always been intrigued by these Bino-Dobsonian telescopes just because of the aperture (laughs) and then using two eyes. uh, Wow. uh, Very, very awesome design. I love this.
1: Well, there's a a thing that we call the binocular summing factor. And, you you know, you can argue all day long about what the actual number is, but it seems like the binocular scope, uh, like a 12-inch binocular scope, is about the equivalent of maybe an 18-inch single scope. In terms of what you can see because you're using both eyes and your brain is doing a lot of image processing that doesn't happen when you just use one eye mm-hmm. um so yeah you know I, I can still see a little bit deeper with my 20 inch scope than i can with the 12 inch bino but um uh, you know i think the 12 inch bino sees deeper than like a 16 inch scope mm-hmm. um and uh you know and and then there's that that whole stereo thing you know you look at the moon and it looks like it's about five feet out in front of you and it looks like you could reach out and touch it and it would be round. You know, it doesn't look like a flat thing. It's a round yeah. rod with things on it, you know? And, uh. and nobody had to
0: sand that. No, no, no <laughs> <sanding much better. laughs> yeah.
2: Well, and there's the comfort factor too, of using two eyes, which is why I've become a big fan of vinyl viewing. Um, it just, it, it I find I can just look at an object for hours if right. I want Whereas right. when I'm using one eye, I need to take breaks, and it it I just find it fatiguing sometimes using one eye. So uh, I love this
1: me too. And you know the weird thing with me, when i i'm I'm pretty much right eye dominant. So when I observe with a monoscope, I'm using my right eye, my left eye begins to itch, and it starts to itch just uncontrollably. And it's mm. one of those weird physiological things. Like, I have no idea why it does that, but it <laughs> drives me nuts. And so there are some nights I take the binoscope out just because I don't want my eye itching. <laughs>
3: yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. And it, it it takes longer to set up and tear down. I have to say, it's a 20-minute job on, mm. on each end of the evening. But, you know, it is so worth it. I mean, that, mm-hmm. first, that first look at any object through the binoscope, it's like, oh, yeah, that's why I did this.
2: <laughs> yeah that's great.
0: Well, folks, I think uh, we're getting to time. Any final thoughts to share with the listeners, Jerry, before we conclude the episode? I guess I would just like to say you know we've been
1: talking about building telescopes and I've been telling you know horror stories about telescopes falling off tables and and uh, how difficult it's it was to do this or that um, but I also you know we haven't talked about the easy stuff. We haven't talked about how how easy it actually is to build a telescope. I've built like 14 of them now, I think, you know, wow. and some of, them, some of them were so easy, they were unremarkable. Uh, and uh, so my, the, my point, and, and the point that I try to make in my column in Sky and Telescope magazine is that it really is easy and rewarding to make something yourself. Um, you know, spend $8 and uh, buy the lenses for your own eyepiece, at surplus shed, you know, that'd be a good start. Mm-hmm. um but you know if you have an equatorially mounted Newtonian telescope and you don't like the equatorial mount build a dobsonian base for it you know it's very easy to do uh or or whatever you know just i i i urge listeners here to uh to to think about making some of their own astronomy equipment because it's so satisfying to make something that you then use to look out at the cosmos with and and see see the glory of the night sky you know with something that you made yourself it, it is a it's a feeling that you won't get until you do it and when you do you'll be hooked and you'll keep doing it and doing it and
0: doing it do you have anything to add to this episode chain there's a lot of fun
2: it was great. Uh, this was a wonderful conversation, Jerry. Thank you very much. Great meeting you. Great discussion. And uh, one thing I'll just mention for everybody listening: you know, we referenced a, a number of your telescopes and images. Uh, everybody should go to Jerry's site. It's uh, Jerry Oli Oli. I can't talk tonight. uh, uh is that correct? Did That's I say o- that
1: right? Oltian.
2: Oltian. Thank okay, you sorry no, no. about that no so worries. uh it's j e r r y o l t i o n dot com if you miss that we'll have it in the episode description so just read it on your podcatching app and uh, you'll you'll have the URL but definitely go check out the site because there's some great images that you can uh, reference and and maybe it adds a little more context to the discussion here
0: thanks Jerry it's been a ball having you on the show today well, and, thank you very much. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I very much
1: enjoyed visiting with you guys. It's been fun.
0: Excellent. And listeners can also read Jerry's monthly Astronomers Workbench or Astronomy Workbench column in Sky and Telescope magazine. Everyone, please be sure to write us with your show ideas, questions, and comments to actualastronomy at gmail.com.